0: Thank you to Dave for leading us here this evening. Dave has uh, conducted a whole service for us during the the summer holidays, but this is the first time that he's taken part in our our, our rota of worship leaders who who participate in our evening services. So, uh, on your behalf, let me thank Dave and um, just appreciate the way in which he has led us so far in our worship. Genesis chapter 39. You'll find it there on page 43. In this series, most of the time it's pretty straightforward, just looking at God's word, allowing it to speak very much in its own terms. So we'll look at this chapter here this evening. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It's difficult to imagine a worse beginning for Joseph and a worse ending for Jacob than what we ended up with last week at the end of chapter 37. If you remember there, Jacob is grieving the son whom he's lost, the son whom he believes to be dead. Joseph isn't dead, but he he may as well be, because he's been dragged off by Ishmaelite traders into uh, the far-off land of Egypt, dragged off into a context where he can hardly hope ever to see his father or his home again. So as we come to the end of Genesis chapter 37, we're left wondering can anything good come of this? Except you and I don't really wonder with the story of Joseph because we know it too well. It's hard for us to come to it entirely fresh. We know that good will come of this. And particularly those of us who, who spend time in God's word, who, who read it and, and allow the, the patterns there to impress themselves in our minds, we know that God can work in impossible situations. We know that in this case good came of it and we know that in countless other contexts God works his salvation in seemingly impossible conditions. Our confidence in this particular situation is strengthened when we we realize that, that actually everything here is working out God's already ordained plan. Turn back with me just a few pages to Genesis 15, something you probably won't remember unless you're very, very familiar with God's dealings with Abraham. Genesis 15, we read there in verse 13 part of God's promise to Abraham. This is three generations back chapter 15 verse 13 God says to Abraham know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land not their own they'll be enslaved and ill treated for 400 years but I'll punish the nation they serve as slaves and afterwards they'll come out with great possessions God has predicted this Egyptian exile that's unfolding here long before Joseph was born I wonder, does Joseph know about that prediction? Did his father pass it on to him? I wonder, does he remember it as he's dragged across those hot desert sands to the fertile Nile Delta? Does he realize, as he's been haggled over in the slave market, and as he begins his first day's work in Potiphar's household, that he's in exactly the place, ...where God wants him to be? Could he have any idea of the incredible way... ...in which God is unfolding every situation along the way? How God's going to use him to save countless lives? Well, the answer is we don't really know... ...or I certainly wouldn't claim to be sure. Whether Joseph realizes it or not... ...God's providence is carefully shaping these events... God's going to work his, his wonderful salvation for his people. And whether he realizes it or not here, God is with Joseph. Now the narrator, narrator makes that explicit for us in verse 2 of chapter 39. And we need him to make it explicit. Because when we look at these, these situations with our hand in our heart honestly, it doesn't look like the kind of situation where God is with his man Joseph's been kidnapped he's been sold into slavery and now he's ended up in a pagan household, one of the most powerful households in Egypt and if I, if I looked at that I'd be inclined to imagine that God isn't in any convincing way with Joseph if God were really with him none of this would have happened. I think that's a more likely conclusion that you and I would come to. And of course, we think this way about our own lives. Whenever things are going well, we believe that God is with us. When we're having good health, when the relationships in our families are good, when we're finding some success in our work, we we sort of tend to imagine that those are indicators of God's blessing. God's presence. But what, what when our health fails? What when our family starts to fall apart at the seams? What when our work has become unbearable? Then we, we jump to the other conclusion. We imagine that God has somehow left us. That he's not in it. That he's not with us. We imagine that our difficult circumstances, they're they're a sign of God's displeasure. We've annoyed God. He's gone to be with someone else who's doing a better job of following Jesus. He's bored with us. Our mundane, everyday humdrum life just hasn't kept his interest. No, friends. Praise God, we can say no to, to any of that kind of thinking. And I think Genesis 39 will impress that powerfully on us. At just the moment when all the circumstances are wrong, we're told that the Lord was with Joseph. At just that time when he'd been taken out of the promised land, the very place that God had promised to his people, he'd been brought into a pagan household, we're told that the Lord was with him. Jacob's situation, sorry, Joseph's situation changes drastically here, but God's relationship with him doesn't change. And I think it's because Joseph must have had some idea of this, some idea of God's presence with him, that we see him rise again, rise again, rise again. Every time he's knocked down, he comes back. And I think it's because he knows in the heart of hearts that God is with him in everything. Folks, and it struck me that the same is true today. The man or woman of God who knows unshakably that God is with them. Whatever happens at home or in work, the man or woman of God who knows that unshakably has that confidence in the presence of God, is able to to rise above and go through and over hurdles that present themselves in our way. The Lord was with Joseph. And he's with any one of us who comes to him in the name of Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples? The very last recorded words in Matthew's gospel? I am with you all always to the end of the age. That always hasn't ended. Whatever's going on in in my life and yours, with Joseph, we can say the Lord is with us. One of the effects of God's presence with Joseph is that he prospered. And we were told in in verse 2 that he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. Now, that already speaks of a a promotion for Joseph. In this context of of a large household with numerous slaves, it's likely that a newcomer slave would have started in some far-flung corner of the estate, far from the the central activities of the household. So when we read here that, that Joseph very quickly lives in the house that's a sign that he's on the up and if you look down to verse 4 I think that interpretation is is endorsed to us we're told there that Joseph made such an impression on Potiphar that he soon made him his assistant the manager of his whole household that's incredible really a young foreign slave being given the run of one of the most important households in Egypt. And how did that come about? Why did Potiphar choose Joseph from among all the others in his household to make his household manager? Well, the narrator doesn't keep us guessing. He tells us in verse 3 that as Potiphar observed this up-and-coming young member of his household, he saw that the Lord was with him. And that the Lord gave him success in everything he did. Isn't that just wonderful? A moment ago we realized that the Lord was with Joseph. But this is slightly different. This is other people recognizing the presence of the Lord in Joseph's life. Isn't that wonderful? Maybe it began with reports from the farm manager about a slave who worked even when the supervisor's eye wasn't on him. Potiphar was no mug. He knew that the guys out in the fields only worked as long as there was a supervisor out there with them keeping his eye on them. If there was no supervisor, the guys lay back in the sun doing nothing. Not Joseph. Maybe the the farm manager's report was corroborated by the head chef under whom Joseph served for a while. He reported how this Hebrew worked in the hot, steamy kitchen, never leaving a job half done. Always cleaning the surfaces and all the machinery that he used. Everything was meticulous in Joseph's work. No task was too small. Nothing too menial for him. And all was done with a cheerful spirit. So, whenever Joseph finally came into the household of Potiphar and became his master's assistant, Potiphar himself was struck by his integrity. He was struck by the way Joseph always kept time with his appointments, how he treated all the slaves under his care fairly, how he always carried out all instructions fully. And to the best of his ability. And he was so trustworthy. Potiphar knew. That he could be away on business. That he could take his eye off the ball. Knowing that Joseph. Could be trusted entirely from start to finish. He didn't give it another thought. And one more thing. Potiphar couldn't help but notice. That his whole household economy took off. As soon as Joseph came into it. Simply having Joseph around changed everything. It was as if Joseph's God brought blessing. Simply because Joseph was there. Potiphar saw that God was with Joseph. I wonder could our bosses say the same thing about us. I wonder if they're so struck by our diligence, our trustworthiness, the standard of our work, that they've come to the conclusion that God is with us. And remember, Potiphar's a pagan. He doesn't know this God at all. He's no categories in which to think of God. And yet there's a reality in Joseph's life that just stops him in his tracks. Does our work speak to our bosses, and our colleagues of the Lord Jesus Christ. In our morning service, we've been looking at Paul's short letter to Titus. Listen to Paul's teaching about slaves and employees because it sounds almost as though he's written it with Joseph in mind. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, Not to talk back to them and not to steal from them. But to show that they can be fully trusted. So that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. Joseph's work spoke to Potiphar about God. And our work can do the same. It can speak to our colleagues and our bosses of Jesus Christ. And make him attractive. I want to say one last thing about Joseph's time as a slave before we move on. We noticed last week in chapter 37 that if, if there's even one recorded fault of Joseph's, if, if there is one, the one that's recorded is, is his, his boastfulness as a young man, his, his lack of humility. Whenever God gave him a dream about his family falling down in front of him, he couldn't stop himself. He just wanted to go and tell them about it, not once but twice, and rub their faces in it. I wonder if this experience of humble slavery in Potiphar's household isn't tailor-made by God as an experience for Joseph. It seems to me likely that God used this trip into Egypt to humble Joseph, to, to replace the, the pride at the center of his life with a, a humble reliance on God for everything. Is it, is it maybe the case that this is the crucible where God is forming the character of Joseph, preparing him for the greatness that's going to be thrust on him in the future? It seems to me that, that we all need to learn this lesson, this lesson of submission and of service. And I think it's a lesson, ironically, that's particularly important for those who, who maybe don't often serve or aren't submitting. It's for leaders. In a passage where he's recommending the practice of service to all, Dallas Willard says this, I believe that the discipline of service is even more important for Christians who find themselves in positions of influence, power, and leadership. To live as a servant while fulfilling socially important roles is one of the greatest challenges any disciple ever faces. He's right. As soon as we're given positions of leadership, we think, brilliant, brilliant, I never have to serve anyone ever again. I'm beyond that. I'm above that. And the moment we do, we part company with our Lord and Savior who came not to be served, but to serve. The discipline of submission, the Lord brings it into Joseph's life. We're moving here into a a next chunk of the chapter and we'll we'll move a little more quickly through it. If the first six verses of the chapter present Joseph as a wonderful example of a man of God and a man of integrity, the next chapter shows us a test to see if he really is what he appears to be. Somewhat out of the blue, in the second part of verse 6, we're told that Joseph was well built and handsome now i i'm getting to that age where i'm losing touch entirely with street language and and slang i was trying to think well what would we say in our culture and i I might be i might get this right and i might not i think the biblical narrator here saying that joseph is fit is that right is that all right or close that's what we're being told here Joseph's the kind of guy if he walked into a room the ladies noticed. Potiphar's wife noticed. We're told that in no uncertain terms. She tried to seduce Joseph and to entice him to have sex with her. Joseph immediately refuses and and his refusal is quite long-winded because he gives a couple of reasons. Uh, And I want to notice those quickly. His first reason goes something like this. Potiphar hasn't held anything back from me except you because you're his wife. And for that reason, he doesn't want to take the one thing that his master has held back from him. I find that interesting. The very reason that Joseph gives for not taking Potiphar's wife is the kind of reason that most people in the modern world would give for taking her. They would say, You know, don't forbid anything to me. Don't make any prohibition on me. I'll take what I want. And the irony is that for some people, no matter how much they've been given, they always want the one last thing that they haven't been given. No matter how much God blesses us, we always want the thing that God forbids. Hasn't that been the story of human history? Isn't that the sin of Eve? They live a wonderful life, Adam and Eve. They live a wonderful life in the garden. One thing is forbidden them, and it's the only thing they want. Joseph didn't take the one thing forbidden to him. He's he's a man who's being transformed to become a man of God. He's learned the same lessons that the Apostle Paul uh, has learned and writes in Philippians 4. I've learned to be content. Whatever the circumstances. I've learned the secret of being content in every and any situation. Let me ask you this evening. Are you content? Are you a person who's learned to see the value of living a contented life? If you are, that contentment will serve you as a wonderful shield against temptation. To move through life not drawn in by this uh, drawn in by that but, but rather content, grateful to God for all that he has already given you Joseph refuses to take Potiphar's wife firstly because he's conscious of all that Potiphar's already given him but there's another, a second and a greater reason that he gives, in the second part of verse 9 He says, how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Joseph understands that sin is always an offense against God. And Joseph fears offending God. He has the law of God written on his heart. There's another wonderful biblical example of this. If you remember David, after his sin with Bathsheba... He prayed a psalm of repentance. And in Psalm 51, we read his confession before God. He says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David realizes that although he has sinned massively against Uriah and against his wife Bathsheba, ultimately his sin is against God. All sin always is an offense against God. And I wonder sometimes how seriously I take that reality. In my heart of hearts, am I not much more concerned about other people discovering a, a sin that I've been caught up in than the offense? That my sin has already caused God who knows of it. If nobody else knows of it, then I feel I've got away with it. Everything's all right. That kind of thinking only shows that I haven't yet taken seriously. The offense that my sin causes God. How can I do such a wicked thing, says Joseph, and sin against God? Joseph has stood firm and he's refused the advances of Potiphar's wife. Surely he's done all that he needs to do to resist this temptation. Wrong. Utterly wrong temptation is seldom overcome by one small victory isn't it the nature of temptation to be persistent to come back at us again and again and again we beat it back on one occasion only for it to come back another time and that's certainly the case here so it is with potiphar's wife we read in verse 10 she spoke to joseph day after day there's a sense of a her wearing him down. There's something relentless about this woman and the way she comes at him. But we read also that Joseph refused to go to bed with her or even to be with her. I believe that Joseph's behavior in this chapter gives us a wonderful model for how we might deal with temptation. We've already noticed how he, he just refuses it. And I've already said that. That's actually only a first step. Secondly, and we see it here in verse 10. Joseph takes measures to get himself out of the context. Where the temptation can have power over him. He refused to go to bed with Potiphar's wife. But he also refused even to be with her. To be in the place where that temptation had power over him. He makes practical arrangements to take himself away for the tempting situation. Friends, this is exactly the kind of disciplined life that we must learn if we are to survive in a sex-mad world. This kind of living isn't a luxury. It's an absolute necessity. I've only been a pastor for a short time, seven years. Three churches here at home in Ulster. Those three churches all have something in common. In every case, I've encountered men who have become addicted to internet pornography. And in every case, I've advised them to take practical steps to remove themselves from the situations where that controls their lives. If you're using a computer, use it in a public space where the presence of other people holds you accountable. If you use the internet, only use it on a shared account with your spouse if you're a married person. Use a shared email address. Put on filters, whatever filters are appropriate for you. And if all that stuff doesn't work, throw out the computer. Find another way of operating the first step to resisting temptation is to refuse it when it comes but that's only the first step the second step is to take ourselves out of the contexts where that temptation has had victory over us but there's a third step to resisting temptation and we see it here in the story of joseph after he's refused potiphar's wife after he's taken measures to keep away from her we read in verse 11 and following of a day when she finally caught up with him. Literally caught up with him, caught hold of him, tried to lure him to bed, and this time he just ran. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, I hope and pray that we will have the wisdom of Joseph when our time comes. Run, run, and keep running. Get away from the thing that will destroy you under God. There's a kind of a a cocky self-confidence, and I sense it in myself sometimes. I can do this. It doesn't matter if I look at that particular image. It won't have any impact on me. I can watch that bit of late night TV. It won't, it won't get to me. I'm strong enough. It's a kind of cocky self-confidence that, that speaks only of, of, of foolishness. better by far to do what Joseph did. After refusing temptation and trying to avoid it, run. Run so that it doesn't ruin your life. God wants you to have a good and a strong and a healthy and a wholesome life. But the opportunities for that life to be taken from you are very real and are many. And there are times in your life when you'll just have to run. Remember then, Joseph, and do it. In a second letter to his young friend Timothy, Paul advises him, flee the evil desires of youth. And that's exactly what any young man or young woman of Jesus Christ must do on occasion. Run. Run. Temptation wasn't the end of Joseph's troubles. In some senses, it was only the beginning. Even this victory over temptation, wonderful as it is, we read on, Potiphar's wife, she's spurned. Hell hath no fury and all that. She trumps up charges against him and Joseph ends up in prison. Now in those times, the, the punishment for a slave who assaulted The master or a member of the master's family was execution no questions asked so it seems likely the very fact that joseph wasn't executed i think there's something going on here i think potiphar probably isn't entirely convinced by his wife's story we're told in verse 19 that he burned with anger but we're not even sure he's angry with is it joseph whom he's grown to trust Or is it his wife, whose character he's probably very well aware of? Maybe he's furious because he's lost the best household manager he ever had. Whether Potiphar thought him guilty or not, it doesn't really matter. Joseph ends up in prison, and not for the first time. It's Joseph's righteousness that leads to his suffering. It's directly because he tried to do the right thing that he ends up in jail and we noticed last week how in this regard joseph is, is a type of christ those who follow in jesus footsteps and who try to maintain their integrity and purity they are never guaranteed an easy ride in fact the very outcome of our desire to follow christ can can often be persecution and suffering and at this point, we draw encouragement from the words of Jesus. Again, it sounds almost as if he had Joseph in mind. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Rejoice and be glad, because great is as your reward in heaven. As we draw to the end of Genesis 39, things have come full circle. Joseph started the chapter in a bad place. He was elevated into a good position and then only to fall again, this time to be thrown down into prison. If things were bad for Joseph at the start of the chapter, they're probably marginally worse uh, by the time we get to the end of the chapter. And again, we're left asking, can anything good come of this? But by now, we're beginning to understand how God works. Even now, we're we're beginning to suspect that God is still somewhere in this. And the narrator confirms it for us in verse 21 While Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. And then we're given a remarkable account of, of his time in prison. The text of these last verses mirrors almost exactly the text of the early verses. We find that Joseph had exactly the same effect on the prison warden that he had had on Potiphar. In verse four, we find that Joseph found favor in Potiphar's eyes. In verse twenty-one, the prison warden sees it the same way. Just as Potiphar had put Joseph in charge of his household, so the warden now puts him in charge of all those held in the prison. Just as Potiphar didn't concern himself with anything he had left under Joseph's care, so the prison warden doesn't concern himself with anything under Joseph's care. There's a wonderful sense here that you can't keep this good man down. And how could you? The Lord is with him. The Lord is with him four times in one chapter the narrator tells us and reinforces it with us. Let me close. Throughout this story, this whole story of Joseph, but but certainly most explicitly in this chapter, Joseph stands as a shining example of the Emmanuel principle, God with God. And we've seen in this chapter how God's with Joseph through all those bewildering circumstances, through all that real-life hardship. And it seems to me that Joseph is able to come through all of this because he remains confident that God is with him and that he's working for his good. Dallas Willard says that it is confidence in the unchanging overriding intention of god for our good that secures in us peace and joy we must be sure of that intention if we are to be free and able like joseph to simply do what we know to be right do you have that confidence of which he speaks Do you have an unshakable confidence that no matter what happens this evening or tomorrow or this week or this month, that God is with you? Do you have an unshakable confidence that he's with you for your good? We can have. We really can. Those of us who are in Jesus Christ indwelt by the spirit of God let's, let's come just now humbly and quietly to God and ask him to give us that confidence just now, let's pray Father God as we read a uh, an account like this in your word. As we see a man go through unspeakable trials and hardships, we're struck by his his wonderful witness, his vibrant, spirit-filled life. And Lord, we long for that for ourselves. Lord, make us people Who can stop worrying about where we are and start instead to to remember and to be inspired by the knowledge of who is with us? Lord, take us from this place this evening, reassured in the depths of our heart and the foundations of our lives that you go with us, and that you mean well. We pray this in Jesus' name, who promised to be with us always. Amen.